And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to Episode 8 of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman, and I'm your host for this new series on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm bringing my career as an economist and my 15 years of experience with manufacturing research to this program to create a deeper and a wider understanding of America's crucial factory sector. We're going to look at the headlines. They matter. They matter a great deal to manufacturing performance. But we will look beyond the headlines as well into the complex dynamics that are changing what manufacturing is, what manufacturing looks like, indeed what manufacturing does. And the key word here is new, new markets, new science, new technology, new economic thinking. We'll help you to understand how each of these is contributing to a new manufacturing story. In our earlier episodes, we explored broad themes, global change, technological change. Last week, with Kevin Swift, we began to bring those themes down to the sector level, the market level, the regional level. And indeed, we had an excellent conversation with Dr. Swift on what is going on in the chemicals subsector. This episode, we are going to look with my guest, Tim Gill, at the iron and steel sector, a sector that has been very much in the news lately. Tim is the chief economist of the American Iron and Steel Institute. Based in Washington, D.C., Tim provides economic analysis in support of, America, of American Iron and Steel Institute's market research, market development, communications, and public policy efforts. Among his responsibilities, Tim oversees the American Iron and Steel Institute's industry statistics program, serves as staff director of its commercial research committee, acts as its economic forecaster, and represents the U.S. steel industry on the World Steel Association's Economics Committee. I've known Tim for many years. I've known him through NABE, and I can tell you that Tim enjoys wide and deep respect in the NABE constellation. He has more than 20 years of experience in business economics and industry analysis. He speaks frequently on the business environment and has contributed to outlook surveys compiled by Bloomberg, the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. Indeed, he was a key member of the team whose forecasts of the U.S. economy were cited by the Wall Street Journal as among the most accurate for not just 2011, but 2012 and 2013. He holds a B.A. from John Carroll University, an M.A. in economics from Miami University, and is a certified business economist receiving this crucial designation as a member of the inaugural CBE class of 2015 for NABE. And I'm pleased to say that Tim is also a co-chair with me of the Manufacturing Roundtable for NABE. So I'm very happy to say that I've been working with him on high-quality manufacturing program for the NABE members. 
Tim, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Cliff. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I'm going to start off by asking you the same question about iron and steel that I asked Kevin Swift about chemicals. As we all know, all know, overall, the U.S. manufacturing sector has struggled to recover from the Great Recession. We know that manufacturing growth picked up modestly in 2017 and 2018, but output remarkably still remains below the pre-recession December 2007 peak. What has been the growth and recovery trajectory in steel? Is steel's business cycle generally coincident with overall manufacturing? Uh, well, there certainly is a relationship between the steel business cycle and the broader manufacturing cycle, uh, since steel, of course, is used in so many manufactured goods. Uh, but there are some important differences uh, in the cyclical behavior of the two. Uh, one difference stems from the fact that the construction industry is a, a very large destination for steel shipments uh, from U.S. steel mills. Uh, construction accounted for about uh, 40% of uh, steel mill shipments last year. Uh, and, of course, the construction industry has its own uh, unique cyclical behavior. Uh, another difference uh, is the post-recession uh, resurgence of the U.S. oil and gas industry, the, the, the shale gale. Um, and hmm. a, a lot of steel is used in uh, oil and gas wells, in, in, in pipelines, uh, and so forth. Uh, yet another difference uh, has to do with differences in, in steel intensity across the, the spectrum of, of manufactured goods. Uh, information technology equipment has been responsible for a, a disproportionate share of uh, manufacturing output growth in recent years, but it's far less steel intensive than, uh, say, household appliances or industrial equipment or construction equipment. Uh, you know, not, not much steel in a semiconductor, uh, but that's a sector that's grown very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of steel in a, in a bulldozer, uh, but that sector hasn't grown uh, as quickly. Uh, you know, the, the, the pattern, the trajectory uh, in uh, the post-Great Recession era, uh, you know, has, uh, I think there have been some similarities with the broader manufacturing sector coming out of the recession. The steel industry had a few years of, of strong growth, uh, as, as did the manufacturing sector uh, writ large. Uh, but then the industry was hit by a downturn uh, in the energy industry. Uh, a couple years of weak conditions in uh, manufacturing end markets, uh, and, and a surge in imports. Um, now, the last uh, couple of years have been uh, an improvement. Uh, shipments increased in both uh, 27 and 2018, uh, but they remain you know, well below uh, where they were prior to the Great Recession. I think whereas overall output of manufactured goods still may be uh, a few percentage points below its 2007 level, uh, steel shipments are, are 10% below. Hmm. You know, innovation is such a, um, a big topic of discussion in, um, in manufacturing circles. Steel, quite frankly, is not often broadly associated with innovation, but perhaps that's incorrect. So let me ask you, currently, is there any dynamism in new product innovation in steel, uh, yes, there there is, and you know, un unfortunately, I think that may be the uh, the industry's best kept secret. Um, okay. A a, uh, a a big driver 
of innovation in in the steel industry is that steel uh, faces competitive threats from uh, other materials in many applications. Uh, wood uh, framing in, in mid-rise uh, construction, uh, for example, or uh, aluminum uh, in in autos, uh, as another. Uh, you know, I could I could probably spend uh, most of our time uh, talking just about this, but I'll I'll kind of limit it to a couple of examples. Uh, you know, the first is that the, the steel industry works very closely with uh, with automakers in developing new grades of steel uh, and uh, manufacturing methods. Um, uh, advanced uh, lightweight high-strength steel uh, with uh, unique metallurgical properties and, and formability uh, enables the auto industry to uh, meet increasingly stringent uh, government emissions requirements in an affordable uh, manner. Uh, in fact, uh, my organization has an office in Detroit that focuses exclusively on working with the auto industry. Um, there's also been uh, substantial innovation in construction-related projects, uh, products uh, a, a, as well. The, uh, the press brake tub girder system uh, allows for, you know, effectively uh, modularizing a short-span bridge construction. It allows for major cost savings, uh, ease in fabrication, and, and faster construction of uh, bridges up to 60 feet in length. So those are just, you know, a, a couple of uh, a couple of examples. Hmm. Let's push it a little. What, if anything, is happening with process innovation in steel? Is is the current wave of disruptive process in, innovation that's broadly occurring in manufacturing, is that infiltrating the steel industry to the degree that it is other manufacturing subsectors? Uh, well, I you know I'd say that uh, you know that there there definitely has been uh, a process innovation. Uh, that has been taking place for 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 some time. Uh, you, you know, a couple of the ways you see it uh, manifested are in uh, gains in uh, in labor productivity and, and energy use. Uh, so, labor productivity in the U.S. Uh, industry uh, has increased by a, a, a factor of five since the uh, early 1980s. Hmm. Energy intensity has fallen uh, by 35 percent since 1990 uh, greenhouse gas emissions intensity fallen at a, at a similar rate uh, over the same time period uh, you know so certainly process innovation is, is driving those gains uh, and, and the industry is working to uh, you know to develop new technologies to extend those gains uh, you know let me let me give you a couple of examples here uh, the the uh, the novel flash iron making process uh, is an innovative uh, iron making technology that's currently in development uh, uses uh, natural gas uh, to uh, uh, reduce iron oxide uh, to to uh, to make iron, and that will uh, lead to uh, lower energy consumption, lower emissions. Uh, the industry's also collaborated extensively with the U.S. Department of Energy uh, in in process innovation. Uh, there were uh, a couple of programs recently completed uh, in which the industry worked with DOE on uh, technology road mapping and uh, on advanced process controls. Uh, so uh, a lot uh, going on in, uh, in that area. I would guess, and again, perhaps incorrectly, that steel producers are generally large. Let me ask, is market concentration in steel manufacturing prohibitive of healthy disrupt healthy and disruptive entrepreneurship 
that's a big, broad topic of conversation in many industries. Is there a market concentration issue in steel? Uh, well, well, first of all, you know, yes, steel producers, uh, steel production uh, operations are, are typically large in scale. Uh, they are highly capital intensive. Uh, they require uh, a sizable startup investment. They, they take time to build out. Uh, you know, having said that, though, there are uh, a large uh, number of steel producers in the U.S. Uh, you, you know, in a a range of sizes. Uh, in you know, some focused on uh, uh, certain types of uh, uh, of products, others on other types. Uh, and you know, even um, you know, even with the sometimes uh, highly adverse. Uh, market conditions that the industry has faced, uh, you know, th- they, that has not uh, proved to be, uh, you know, an impediment uh, to entry within the last uh, few years. Uh, for example, uh, Big River Steel uh, in Arkansas has uh, has been a new entrant to the industry, uh, and they've already uh, announced plans to expand beyond their uh, initial footprint. Uh, a number of uh, incumbent uh, firms have uh, recently announced plans to to update uh, or, or expand their capabilities. Uh, you know, new firms uh, have entered the market to, uh, to either revitalize uh, old assets or to make uh, greenfield investments. So, you know, th- this investment ultimately, you know, is going to help yield the new uh, and improved processes and, and innovative products that uh, you know we had uh, we had just talked about. Let's turn somewhat naturally to the subject of pricing, steel pricing. Am I correct in saying that there is no spot market for steel as there is with other crucial commodities such as oil and copper? I, I'm, if there isn't, I understand that part of the challenge is the range of steel alloys. But generally speaking, is is, is there a spot market as with oil and copper and do you more generally feel that pricing transparency is an issue with steel? Well, as as a uh, as a trade association person, I've, I've got to be careful okay. uh, in, in talking about the pricing environment. So, you know, and I'll admit that I am not uh, an expert in this area. But what I what I would say is that there is you know, certainly a wealth. Of, of price information available uh, in, uh, in you know in trade publications and through consulting firms, uh, you know Platts, uh, American Metal Markets, uh, CRU are, are are a few that come immediately to mind, uh, and they publish uh, price indexes, uh, benchmarks, assessments uh, for for a wide range of products. Uh, you know from the, the alloys to stainless uh, to, to various types of carbon steel, different grades. Uh, different different product types, um, you know, and they typically gather that by uh, interviewing uh, market participants. So I think, you know, the the if you know on a, from a transparency uh, basis, I, I think there is uh, you know quite a lot of of public information out there uh, with respect to prices. All right. Every show I have to talk about, and I want to talk about the human capital picture because. It's a matter of ongoing concern in the U.S. manufacturing sector as a whole. Can you give our listeners just a general sense of the steel workforce? Is it primarily an educated workforce? Are there age concerns? Are there, in your opinion, skills deficit concerns? 
Uh, well, sure. The the you know I think the the you know most recently uh, you know the the concerns uh, facing the industry were were kind of a different sort of labor problem in that they were you know, forced to lay off workers uh, in in the face of uh, you know adverse uh, market conditions uh, and 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 uh, surging imports. Uh, U.S. steelmakers had to lay off uh, nearly. Uh, 20,000 workers uh, in, in 2015 and 2016. Uh, now, you know, fortunately, as, as conditions have improved, they've been able to uh, bring back um, about 7,000 of those jobs. And, and now, of course, that's that's taking place in the face of a, a very, very tight labor market. Um, you know, the, the the nature of the work has certainly changed uh, dramatically over time as it has throughout the manufacturing sector. Uh, a, a steel worker uh, today is often controlling and, and monitoring process flows on a, a bank of video monitors and uh, working on uh, computer terminals in a in a control room. So they're you know they're highly skilled uh, and, and and well paid jobs. Uh, and you know, as uh, the labor market uh, you know gets tighter and tighter, the the steel industry is facing you know much the same issues as as the okay. manufacturing sector is broadly. Now we're going to turn to recent events. Obviously, please give us your thoughts, if you would, on the trade developments that have put steel in the spotlight. Well, the, the the key factor, uh, you know, the, the, the critical development uh, in, in recent years has been the uh, emergence, you know, over say the last decade, of an enormous uh, industrial overcapacity. Uh, you know, and that's a that's a problem uh, for, for the steel industry, but it's not limited to just the steel industry. Uh, but but relative to the steel industry, uh, the OECD. Uh, estimates that uh, steel making overcapacity uh, on a global basis was uh, more than 600 million tons uh, last year. So, you know, for some context, that that's five times the the entire U.S. installed capacity. It's uh, it's almost six times uh, U.S. steel consumption last year. Uh, much of the overcapacity is in China, uh, and that uh, you know Chinese production. Uh, continues to grow despite you know what I think most observers believe is a is a broadly slowing uh, Chinese economy uh in Chinese steel production was a, a record level uh, in 2018 more than a, a billion tons uh so you know uh, essentially you have a situation uh where you have US steel makers that are uh, subject uh, to market discipline uh, in terms of access to capital, uh, you know, the need to provide a competitive rate of return on that capital to investors, all the constraints of a private enterprise operating in a in a market system, uh, but having to compete against an industry that is, you know, essentially uh, an organ of the of the Chinese state. Uh, you know, the, the the Chinese steel industry is state owned, state controlled. Uh, it's heavily subsidized, so it's it's just not fundamentally subject uh, to, to market forces that eventually you know, should should weed out uh, loss making uh, uncompetitive firms. Uh, so you know to to address that, uh, you know the the the, the Obama administration was uh, instrumental uh, late in its tenure in uh, creating 
uh, a global forum on steel excess capacity, which uh, you know is an attempt to uh, bring together uh, the global industry to try to work through to try to uh, address this issue. Uh, but that hasn't produced concrete results uh, to date. Uh, so you know that that's the context in which uh, the Trump administration uh, conducted the Section 232 uh, national security investigation and uh, found last year that uh, steel import surges uh, indeed threaten the, the national security uh, by threatening the uh, the viability of, of of the domestic industry and, and ultimately imposed uh, a, a remedy. In in the whole tariff drama, we certainly focus very intensively on China. But let's let's clarify that in reality, tariffs have been let levied on nearly every country. Is that correct? Yes, uh, that that is that is correct. Uh, nearly every uh, country has a, a 25% tariff. Uh, Argentina. Uh, uh, Brazil and uh, and South America have quotas uh, have had quotas involved in lieu of tariffs, um, but the you know the the focus is on China uh, because the 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 Chinese state owned uh, companies uh, continue to dump uh, subsidized steel around the world and that's had the effect of of disrupting the the entire global market. Uh, so while um, you know, direct imports uh, to the United States from China have uh, have fallen in the last few years, and, and in part due to uh, a number of successful uh, trade cases brought by uh, by steel companies. Uh, you, know, you still have extreme levels of uh, Chinese steel production and uh, exports through uh, third countries uh, that you know that continue to threaten the, the U.S. industry's viability every time. You know the industry obtained uh, relief on dumped and subsidized imports uh, through the traditional trade laws from one set of countries. Imports surged in uh, from other countries. Uh, steel is, is easily uh, transshipped through third countries that are not subject to um, to, to trade remedy orders, uh, and that's why the uh, the administration uh, uh, took a more uh, comprehensive uh, approach to the problem. Well, let me ask you, in a, just in a straightforward manner, how are the tariffs currently impacting the U.S. steel industry? Well, given the uh, information that we have uh, available right now, uh, they are having the the intended impact. Uh, you know, the, the, okay. the tariffs, uh, as well as uh, the quotas. Uh, began to take effect last April. Uh, they were fully implemented uh, by by June. Uh, but since April, uh, U.S. Uh, raw steel making uh, capacity utilization, uh, and that's that's the first stage in in the, the the steel making process, converting the raw materials into raw steel. Uh, utilization in that sector, uh, you know, has, has risen from 76 percent to. Uh, over 81 percent uh, currently. Now, of course, that you know that's a function not only of a more level uh, playing field for the U.S. industry relative uh, to, to international trade, uh, but also a, a, an improved environment for for steel use. Uh, more more directly to the trade uh, remedy, uh, steel imports have uh, fallen uh, 37 percent uh, between April and November. 
mm-hmm. the important yeah. market share, uh, the, 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 you know, the share of, of finished steel products accounted for by imports uh, fell uh, more than, than eight percentage points uh, between, uh, between April and November. Uh, and I, you know, I mentioned uh, investments earlier. Uh, you know, uh, one company, uh, Nucor, uh, announced a uh, a billion dollar plus uh, expected investment in a new mill uh, in the Midwest. Uh, U.S. Steel announced plans to uh, restart construction of a long delayed uh, furnace in Alabama, and w- was able to. Uh, restart blast furnaces uh, at their uh, Granite City, Illinois plant. So those are uh, a reflection of uh, the momentum that's uh, starting to build uh, in in the industry. Well, with with steel playing into such a multiplicity of supply chains, are you concerned about collateral impacts or collateral damage to other industries? Uh, Well, the, 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 uh, the objective, of course, of the the Section 232 uh, remedies is 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 a national security objective. It's to uh, protect the U.S. national security by allowing the the domestic industry to return uh, to an economically uh, sustainable footing. Um, you know, having having said that, though, I you know I think a, a lot of the the concerns about uh, adverse economic impacts are are, are overstated. The, the share of uh, Steel, you know, in the price of most manufactured goods, is is, is pretty small. Uh, it's less than uh, less than five percent for the average uh, U.S. produced uh, light vehicle, uh, for example. Uh, the last time, you know, something uh, similar to this was done uh, was uh, early in the uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, when. Uh, tariffs were uh, imposed in the Section 201 case, a different uh, uh, a different trade law, and uh, the uh, you know in the aftermath of that, the International Trade Commission uh, estimated that there really was no uh, significant economic uh, impact uh, on the uh, on the U.S. as a whole. Well, a swirl of forces, both policy, market, structural, on on this industry sector. So as a final question, I'm going to ask you, what is your sense of the long-term outlook for the U.S. steel industry, both in terms of growth and innovation? Uh, well, I know you asked about the long term, but if I, is it okay if I start with sure. a few words about the short term? Uh, sure. If I yes, could. Okay. Uh, so, you know, in the short term, of course, the, the outlook, uh, you know, sp- speaking, you know, at the moment for, for steel demand, uh, it's it's tied to the business cycle, uh, you know, not just the manufacturing cycle, but also construction, uh, energy, et cetera, as we as we talked about uh, at at the beginning, you know, and we see further demand growth uh, in, in 2019 and 2020. We we've had uh, two years of of demand growth the, the past two years uh, coming off of a, a downturn, uh, you know, and we see that continuing, albeit you know at, at a slower pace. Uh, than the last couple years, uh, as you know, the, the the broader economy and most of the key steel uh, and markets are are expected to slow. Uh, you know, longer term, you know, the, the the U.S. industry is world class in in efficiency, uh, in environmental performance, in, you know, in safety, in, in innovation, and really in any 
any attribute you can name uh, that the Department of Energy has recognized the U.S. industry as the most energy efficient uh, of any major steel producing country. Uh, so it's it's very well positioned for uh, long-term growth and to continue to to uh, be able to innovate uh, well into the future. Uh, you know, but in order to you know in order to remain that that backbone of the U.S. manufacturing sector, like it has uh, you know for so long, it's 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 just critical that it not be undermined by by trade abuses and you know and global overcapacity that stems from uh, non market government intervention. Tim Gill, you've given us your time. You've given us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much, Cliff. I I really enjoyed it and uh, hope to be able to come back at some point. Indeed, we will have you back. Listeners, I said this last week, with the challenges that we have here in Washington, it is wonderful what deep and talented industry expertise we also have with us. In the coming shows, we have some very exciting episodes lined up, and particularly the next one. I'm going to have the honor of moderating a a session on innovation in manufacturing on a global scale at the NAVE Policy Conference next week, and we will be taping that of Manufacturing Matters. I'm also, in future episodes, going to have Jeremy Leonard, the Director of Industry Economics at Oxford Economics, and Haig Stoddard, a well-known and well-respected expert on the auto sector. Until those episodes, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.